Welcome to Just a GP. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I'm here today with Beck Hoffman and Charlotte Hesby and our special guest for today, Wally Jamal, who's a GP who owns a practice out in Western Sydney, passionate about quality and safety and a special interest in health economics and primary care reform. We've asked Wally to come and chat to us today because his practice is involved in the healthcare homes trial and we're interested to talk to him about his experience of that as well as what it's like to create change within a team and going a little bit against the grain of what the profession is keen or wanting to do. So it'll be an interesting episode and I think what we'll do is start like we always do with a highlight of the week. So I'll start with you, Charlotte. Hi and welcome everybody. The highlight of the week for me this week is actually being here on the podcast. I've had one of those really busy weeks with not much that's gone right, really. Um, Lots that's been stressful. And so I've tried to moderate that by going running and doing other bits and pieces. Had to go to a funeral today and had a funeral yesterday for another patient and so it's just wonderful to actually be able to be here talking with wonderful colleagues and just being able to enjoy the joys of being a GP. That's so lovely Charlotte. I really like these get-togethers as well. They're a really nice way of reflecting on lots about life and work and I really enjoy it. My highlight of the week is a personal highlight. It was um, my birthday last week and I spent all week catching up with friends and family, which was lovely. But the bigger highlight was at just after midnight, the very next day, my twin sister had a little boy. So I've now got a brand new baby nephew born the very next day after our birthday. And so we had a wonderful week with family and it was a brilliant highlight. Well, what a lovely highlight. I think we can all join in saying congratulations and congratulations to your sister. Thank you. Yeah, congratulations. Very auspicious time for your family this time of year now, won't it be? <laughs> Absolutely. And Wally, what's your highlight? Well, my highlight was um, going to a 30th birthday party last Saturday night for a couple of reasons. One is it made me feel young again because I'm a lot older than 30. Uh, and secondly, it was for one of my registrars or recent fellows, actually, who um, invited pretty much all of the team at the practice, and, as well as her family and, and friends, of course. And it was a really lovely celebration to see everybody together, and particularly um, a lot of our team and our practice team there. We just, just had a lot of fun, and it was just great to bond together and, and help just think to celebrate their wonderful birthday. Yeah, it's a really interesting point that Charlotte brought up in one of our previous podcasts about the team getting together in a non-clinical way to get to know each other a little bit personally. I think that makes a bit of a stronger team. What do you think? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, in fact, it sort of plays into with, um, one of um, I suppose the topics that you want to talk about, um, and that is, you know, how to sort of bring bring a team together, how to uh, inspire the team, how to motivate them, how to get them really working at the best of their ability. And and one of the most important things as a practice owner, as a, as a practice principal, is to actually get to know the individual. And there's a lot of work being done around this, not necessarily at a very personal or, or a um, you know, there's a lot of things that obviously you don't want to tell your work colleagues, and that's fine, respecting their privacy, but but getting to know them and what makes them tick as a person is really important. Yeah. 
And I guess that's why we do this little personal highlight of the week too, to, to give our listeners a bit of an idea about who we are and what kinds of things that we like as well. So um, I'm going to cheat again this week. I did have a personal highlight that I went and saw one of my all-time favourite singers on the weekend down in Melbourne. But then as I logged into my computer today, my photos on my laptop have started coming up with random photos and there was a little photo of my dog when he was only six weeks old and I found all these little photos of him when he was six weeks old and he's about four now so I spent the couple of minutes before coming on the podcast looking through these old puppy photos and that has since superseded my previous highlight of the week. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one too. It's that's one of the joys of these photos throwing back at you, isn't it? You just get these random lovely memories that just revive the joys of life. Yeah. And so interesting to see that a lot of the kind of ways that he was being as a puppy is very similar to how he is now as a fully grown dog and mature dog. It's quite uh, interesting. I think the same happens with people. It does. So why don't we start with what you were talking about before, Wally, and, and just describe for for the benefit of us and our listeners what your journey has been in terms of practice ownership and, well, I guess just start with the journey of why you decided to get into practice ownership and, and how you, it led to you to getting into the healthcare homes. I can barely remember why I got into practice ownership. It was such a long time ago. But obviously wanting to have some sort of independence and really have your own vision of what you wanted to achieve uh, in a practice and for, for the patients that, that come and see you and call you their doctor and their GP. And um, for me, I, you know, it was, oh, it was many years ago now, it was 20, 20 odd years ago that we decided to open up our own practice. And when I say we, I've been obviously very fortunate and, and honoured to have my wife join me as an owner. She's not a GB, she's an intensive care nurse, but she's been a practice manager and uh, my boss for <laughs> since that time. But we, but together we sort of forged what we wanted to do with our practice. So skipping through, you know, various uh, gears and, and decades forward, for me, the journey towards continuous and really developing the passion for quality improvement really took hold uh, of my vision and now my purpose for the practice right almost right from the beginning but certainly took on the last decade if not longer and combine that with I found myself sort of working on a, a couple of government committees on MSAC, uh, ESC and uh, the, you know looking at the economics of health which is very interesting and it came you know dawned on me that actually we're all trying to do the same thing be it clinicians at the front line practices and GPs delivering a service to patients but also we, we can't do that in isolation we need to absolutely have stewardship of the entire health system and to some degree obviously all of the population from our patients and it really taught me a lot on how to look at value of healthcare from different perspectives uh, from perspectives of governments and um, systems and payers from perspectives of patients uh, and of course the perspectives of our of us as a practice and us as clinicians trying to deliver a service to our patients and so when you look at it together the, the three actually aligned in a lot of areas and that that's what got me involved in a lot of um, policy work and looking at health policy in general. And to me, it's always been about quality improvement. That has to be the fundamental underpinning of, of whatever we do uh, and having a quality improvement strategy within the practice. Combine that with active leadership within the practice and then you've got commitment to change. And so that led us down the journey. And then Healthcare Homes, the program, if you want to call it that, the actual trial, really just came on years after we started doing what we're doing. 
and was an enabler rather than a blocker. It enabled us to just pick it up and just run with it. And it's been great from that perspective. So Wally, and I've talked to you many times about the healthcare homes and the model. I'm interested because there's obviously been a number of other practices that haven't been able to cope with some of the changes in the funding model as to how you've been able to reconcile that with all of the doctors in your practice. Because I think one of the biggest challenges always is being able to manage change. And so when you are being funded to do things differently, how do you bring everybody along with you? And how do you make sure it feels equitable? Because again, some of the sort of the voices out there are just saying that they don't feel like it's it's still fair or equitable in terms of what you're needing to do and how you get paid and all of that jazz. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's been some recent sort of media, uh, you know, the, um, you know, articles written about that. And that's one of the most common causes of frustration. And I've talked to a lot of practices around the country and a lot of bad chairs involved. And, and it basically comes down to this. If you think about it from a higher level for it to, and work our way down, you said it yourself just now, Charlotte, this is funding to do things differently. If you try and do exactly the same function in practice, exactly the same way as, you're, as you've been doing it before, and use a different funding stream to do that, it's going to fail. So that's the first recognition that this is actually funding to do things differently. And moving away from fee for service is a significant step in our culture, in our ethos, in the way that we've been trained, in, our, in the way that we practice. And so you can't just pick this up and say, oh, we'll give it a go and just run with it. As I said earlier, we've actually been thinking about this for some time before healthcare homes came along. And it goes down to, um, before you even talk about funding and the way the dollars flow or whatever, you've got to talk about engagement of the staff and a common purpose. And so we, every single GP in practice, every single nurse, every single staff member knew exactly what we were doing at every step of the way and were absolutely committed to it right from the word go. So they were all on board before we even enrolled our first patient, before we signed up. Mind you, we signed up very early and we were ready to go. And that was because we were given, we'd been sort of focusing on this and, and had the opportunity to think about it for a lot longer than many other practices who signed up. And so one of the fundamental problems is, is then, well, if you're all on, all on board and all have a, have a common purpose, then you can actually talk about the financial implications of it together, the financial modelling of it internally together. And as it turned out, and I recognise absolutely that every practice is going to be different, but as it turned out, the funding in the healthcare home that comes to healthcare homes patients um, flows through to the doctor's in exactly the same way as it did before. So we didn't change our financial structure, we didn't change the percentage, we didn't change the contracts, we didn't touch anything. Nothing changed and it's worked beautifully. That feeling that they weren't going to be penalised, that GPs are not going to be penalised or, or you know, rewarded in, in a similar way to what, they were, to what they were getting before, in fact it's worked out better from the financial point of view for us, is absolutely crucial. What I've read and what I've seen and one of the problems that I see, and we're getting down to a nitty-gritty process here, but you can't replace a fee-for-service system that we live in under the MBS with a fee-for-service system within a practice. It doesn't work. It just completely and utterly defeats the purpose. And so we haven't. We've completely removed the, the fee-for-service. We don't bill anything to anyone. The money comes through. The doctors, they get, get their percentage uh, as usual, and the practice gets its percentage. The team work together as a team, 
and um, the patients are committed to their doctors and the nurses and vice versa. Well, could you just clarify for me, having not been to your practice or unaware of how your practice is, is structured, uh, you were talking a little bit about how you can't kind of expect to do things the same with a different funding model and for it to succeed. You've got to kind of look at how you're being funded and how you're structuring your practice. So what does a day look like for a GP in your practice in terms of their appointment books and the ways they interact with patients? Sure. Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, and, and, and look, most days and most of the day it looks exactly the same as before because you've got to remember that the number of enrolled patients in a, in a typical practice is small compared to its um, entire database. So you still have to service everybody else in, you know, in very similar ways because we rely on the MBS to do that. But I suppose let me just give you the, the sna- a snapshot of what we can do and do do, although I must say we don't do this every day. This is not a picture of an everyday event. But what we can do is we can now take that pooled funding, and it is pooled funding. It's not one of the other mistakes is that the dollars per patient, you know, what do you do when that runs out? That's not how it works. You actually pull the money together, and it's, you know, I have 126 patients enrolled under my name. The money gets pulled together, and we deliver the care where it's needed. And so now I can afford to sit down two hours a week with my side by side with my practice nurse and put up the names of all the enrolled patients and just run through them, open their files, ring them, deliver proactive care, manage their care plans, write scripts without them coming in, service their other needs that are routine without them coming in. And so you need to change your mindset. Now, we, we are when live in a mindset where patients need to usually come in for you to do something because everything must flow through the doctor under the MBS. That's not how it works with these hundred and odd patients. Unless, of course, it's an acute problem that's not serviceable in that model. A lot of their chronic disease care can be managed without them necessarily being present physically. Uh, they can be present on the phone, they can be present by email and so on. And so we engage with patients in a lot of different ways now and we can afford to do that. And I can afford to sit down two hours a week minimum, if not more, side by side with my nurse and just manage these patients and not see any other patients. So you can just block out time and fund it. And that's how that works. So to think that patients need to come in to get their services need is a completely different mindset to what Healthcare Homes is trying to do. And if you have an, another GP in your practice, do they have that same opportunity as well? And how do they get kind of paid for that in that time? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so so the amount that you need varies on the number of patients you've got enrolled. So as, as I said earlier, every single GP is involved. Even a registrar uh, has enrolled um, two patients or under our supervision. And we'll take out of that patients when the registrar leave. So, you know, some of the GP, some of the part-timers only have, you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 patients enrolled, others have 50, you know, I've got 100 and something. So the more enrolled patients you need, the more blocked out time you need. And we we just ask them what they want. You want to block out time to, to do all of this stuff? Yep. How much time do you want? When do you want it? We block it out. And, and the nurses work together. Obviously, they're already employed in the practice. They work together with the doctors side by side to do so. How they get paid, we could actually just pay them an hourly rate to do it. But actually, don't, we don't need to do that because it pays for itself. When you've got a steady income stream for 100 patients or 20 patients that comes in every single month, whether the patient touches base or not, or comes in or not, you take that money, you give the doctor their, their usual their percentage, and, and the practice keeps the rest. It's like money for the patient. It's the same care that you're trying to deliver, but you're delivering in a different way. So in our practice, no, we don't pay them anything because they're getting paid to look after those patients every month, whether the patients come in or not. So is that like... um? in terms of the how people not in this program might see it similar to 
say, um, how practices might work a CVC program or their PIP payments where they might provide yeah. a percentage yeah. of the PIP yeah. to the doctors involved or enrolled in those programs? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the key to our, and I'll say this unashamedly, the key to what has made it successful here is not interfering with the funding mechanism to a GP. When GPs are used to getting a percentage or, even, of course, when they're registrar, they're an employee, right? But let's talk about usual GPs. When usual GPs are employed on a percentage basis, they will continue to get paid as a percentage basis. The money that comes in for the patients that are enrolled under their name, and this is what a lot of people don't understand, when you get the statements every month, sure, it comes in in one block on a monthly basis, but the money gets identified down to a patient level, down to a provider number level, and it's simple maths to add up the patients enrolled under the provider number. They actually divide it up on the page per provider. So I'll take right provider A, there's the patients, there's the money, here's your, here's your percentage, thank you very much. It's exactly the same way as Medicare billings. I, I mean, I just think that's a really sensible, it makes such logical sense. In terms of sort of providing clinical audit, what's your way of, I mean, not censoring or being big brother, but how do you make sure that the care is actually being delivered to those patients? Yeah, and, and it's a very, very valid question because one of the biggest criticisms of this, um, of any sort of block payment program is, well, what's the top you taking the money and running and not providing any care? The first answer I have is actually ask the patients. So we have patient reported uh, experience measures that we use and, and, and so on. But actually, <laughs> you don't need to audit because the team is actually doing it together, Charlotte. The patients are enrolled under a GP and are allocated to a nurse, and the nurse is responsible as not as responsible, of course, a GP bears responsibility. But the nurse gets a panel of patients or, or, or the list. Who's these patients' nurse is asked? Who's your GP, and which nurse do you normally see, and who's your nurse? So it's about accountability down to a nurse level, and now we have a medical practice assistant as well, and down to that level. So we assign patients to a GP to a nurse to a medical practice assistant, and they're in charge of that list. It's your patients. Away you go. Work out, we have a system to look after them, go for it. That, that sounds great. Um, so if you've got part-time GPs, you could then potentially set up a team. So say the orange team, that means that you have part-time GPs who cover the entirety of the week, who then can co-share some of those patients too. Does you know because I mean again that's what I hear is the unfairness of you know well I'm having to deal with their patient when they're not here, so what happens to me in that payment model? Yeah, absolutely. Look, only when I say that we don't replace an internal fee for service, the only internal fee for service model model or item or flow that we need to monitor is when a non an enrolled patient attends to see not their usual enrolled GP on a day they're not there uh, and. And obviously that GP needs to be paid. And so they will get paid the equivalent of the Medicare item and that money comes out of the pot of money that comes in for that patient. So when I'm away or when I'm not here, which is quite a lot, as you know, Charlotte, <laughs> um, when my patients come in and they get seen for their for something for their chronic disease management and because they have to be on the day, that GP gets paid the, the equivalent of the Medicare item number and we've created an internal code to monitor that but we don't run that code for anything else it's just basically visits it's visits and so um uh when a patient rings and needs a prescription or a referral or something routine i can do it okay that's really urgent get the message goes to the usual gp and if i can wait till i get here great if 
if it can if it can't then one of my other, one of the other gps does it and we do that for non-enroll patients anyway like we work together as a team anyway so this hasn't changed the culture that's what i'm saying it needs to start with the culture of teamwork and fairness and equity and bring everybody along and then the funding stream translates down the track one thing that i'm hearing you talk a lot about wally is relationships and relationships within the team do you think that's one of the things that has really meant that you've been able to drive change and make it successful because you had that mm. team relationship yep. initially? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, without a doubt. And I, as I said, I've visited a lot of practices, talked around a lot of around the country, and actually our first our first message into drive change is just focus on the leadership and the quality improvement strategy and the rest will follow. If you focus on funding, if you focus on key coordination, or just if you jump up the transformation process and don't underpin it with leadership and teamwork and a quality improvement strategy that everybody shares as a common purpose, you're going to find it very hard, just very difficult. And so that relationship, that teamwork was crucial. And one of the one of the most valuable resources that I've come across that I've read personally is a book by Edgar Schein on humble leadership. It's got nothing to do with medicine. But it's about leadership and, and how to do it and how to build what Edgar Schein calls level two relationships, which is getting to know the capability and the human being and getting them, uh, aligning yourself with them and aligning them with you. And once you have a common purpose, you're off and running. And it sounds like there's, it's that concept of being, like you say, humble in yourself enough to be open and curious about where other people are coming from so that you can kind of approach that from a, a, a sense of flexibility. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I suppose if there's, I know, I mean, you don't want to sort of cliche this, there's a lot of cliches in this when you read a lot about this and you try to practice it. Going up to an employee, whether it be an employee or a contracted GP, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> but go, having a meeting and a one-on-one with them for an hour and sitting there saying, well, what, what is it makes your day good? What do you like doing? And then turning around at the end of the hour or in the middle of the hour and focusing on one question. How can I, as a practice owner, make it easier for you to do the best job that you can? How can I make your you how can I help you do the best that you can and do the things that you can? Now that works really well, even as a peer, as a colleague, but it works even better with with, with um, employees of the practice. Because they feel empowered that that they actually share your view or empowered to actually speak up. They're empowered to have what's often referred to as psychological safety in leadership circles. They're empowered to speak when they're not happy about something. And that is fundamental to change, in my view, is having that humble inquiry, the humble empowerment of staff, getting to know them at a personal level and getting the best out of them rather than the most out of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm 100% with you. I'll turn that around because you're, I think, delivering a team model care where it is actually about the members actually feeling like they do have a voice, which goes back to the whole premise of the healthcare home and why you got interested in the first place, which was actually to have a patient-centred model of care. And you talked about as one as your ways of being able to know whether it was working was to ask your patients about it. I mean, from my perspective, a lot of times when health services talk about patient-centred care, they talk about it as if they're doing it. Yet when we go and experience it, 
particularly if you, you're the patient, the, it's not a patient-centred model of care at all. It's very still, much still the doctor-centric, health service-centric. They just sort of talk about it, that it's for the patient. So tell me, how have you taken that mantra of patient-centred care and adopted it into your model? And would your patients say that their experience is that they're getting care that is around their needs? Um, well, it's a great question. And I think, um, and, and, and it would be wrong of me to pretend for a moment that I deliver patient-centred care at each and every interaction with our patients. I'll be delusional to say that in that. But because you're absolutely right. We, we, we do things that we think is good for patients and we call that patient-centred care. The key words there that are wrong are that we do things that we think are good for patients. We often don't ask them what, what they think. And so the best light bulb moments that I had was when I visited a practice overseas that had all the sort of um, pillars of patients in the medical homes stuck up in every room, and we've all heard them. Improved access, accountability, comprehensiveness, continuity, coordination, and patient-centeredness. Those, those were pillars of high-quality, high-performing general practice and a patient-centered home, if you want to call it that. doesn't matter what it's called. But it, the definition of those terms varies as to who you speak to, and the best definition actually comes from the patient. And what does patient-centered care define as from a patient's perspective? And the best definition I've seen is this, and this is in a quote, if you want to think about the patient, patient saying this to you, recognize that we are the most important part of the care team and that we are ultimately responsible for our overall health and wellness. So that viewpoint, there's a number of important things there that really stand out to me. And, and it's the patient telling me that I've got to recognise that it's, the, it's all about them. It's not about what we do that we think is good for them, but it's all about them. And until we have them as part of the care team looking after themselves, which we all know this anyway, and until we have them responsible for their overall health and wellness, we're, not, we're just beating around the edges. And so... To, to help measure that, how do you measure that? Is there are various ways, and earlier I mentioned about patient-reported measures, and that's something that we've embarked on to varying extents with various flows, but we're doing it in quite a lot of patients. And are we using patient-reported outcome measures? Are we using patient-reported experience measures? Are we using patient satisfaction measures? There are important differences. Often people have satisfaction surveys, and they call that experiences. They're different. Experience measures capture the emotion on what the patient felt at a consultation or what the patient felt about a consultation, so it uses emotional terms. Satisfaction is just that. You know, were you happy with the service today? You know, did you understand what you needed to do? Would you recommend us to your family and friends? They're all satisfaction scores, and we measure them too because they're important. But I think in the future we'll be hearing a lot more about patient-reported outcome measures. We worry a lot in health about, well, can we measure this and measure that and... Does it, is it meaningful? What does it mean? Is it, does it count? You know, is it really an indication of what we're trying to do? The best measures, I think, the most important outcomes that we need to measure are what the patients report about themselves, about their quality of life, about their function in life, about their sleep, about their happiness, about their joy, about their social interactions, about their pain. And there's all sorts of validated tools that you can use. And we've, we have used them and it's been helpful for us to use these to help build care plans around the patient's needs. Yeah, these sort of patient-related outcomes are really fascinating in terms of understanding how we deliver health better. I mean, it's a bit like the patient who has breast cancer and they're very thankful to be alive. They're very thankful not to have metastases. But the thing that 
then bugs them most is a particular side effect that they weren't sort of told about related to one of the drugs that they have, which then they have to live with for years and years. And to how do we manage that? And they accept that, that they wouldn't have undergone the treatment. But it's about understanding that, you know, they're a survivor, but there has been a cost. And how do we manage that um, for that patient? The, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and one, so one of the beauties of the alternative funding stream is that at the moment, we we all know, and let's call it what it is, the elephant in the room is basically we do care plans for patients and we do them well most of the time. Uh, and but, but we're dictated to how often we can do them, how often we can build them, that is, uh, and what's in them and what's not in them by the MBS item descriptor. Enrolled patients in healthcare homes need a care plan. But I open up the care plan every single time a patient walks in the room. I don't have to worry about building an item ever again for this patient on this and get paid. And the care plan we've redesigned for those patients, at the top of the care plan is my care plan. My life goal is I want to go to Italy. I'd like to play golf. So how do we do that? Then all the medical stuff fits in underneath. And the patient report outcome measures and experience measures that we use to trigger the conversations around the care plan form the basis of that. Again, I'm speaking widely here. We're not can't pretend we're doing it every single visit at every time, but that's what that's what we can achieve on the enrolled patient because we're not restricted by the item number. So, Wally, I have a question in relation to expansion. If your practice got funding for every single patient enrolled, so let's say every just hypothesise, although unlikely that 100% of patients will enrol, but if all of your patients enrolled, just say pie in the sky. What would you foresee would change about how you're doing it now versus how you would do it if all your patients were enrolled? So there's a there's a there's an important thing to, to, to differentiate here when you're talking about enrolment and funding type. Okay, so let's uh, can I just make it very clear for the purpose of this the definition here? Yeah, absolutely. So having enrolment is basically just that is just formalizing the relationship between the GP and the patient. No one wants enrolment where patients aren't free to go anywhere they want because that restrict access and certainly restrict choice and the Australian community will not put up with that. Enrolment is a formalisation step. Okay, I'm your chosen GP. I want to be the one delivering most of your care for your most of your health and the team here is there for you and this is your nurse, etc, etc. And therefore that enrolment helps build continuity and just that. And it gives you an idea of who your patients are so that you can turn to them saying, I see 20 or 30 patients in a day, but what about the other 500 or the 1,000? What's happening to them? And with enrolment, you can actually then keep a register of that. Not all patients need to move away from fee-for-service. I totally disagree with complete uh, capitation. Nobody wants that. So in, an, in every practice will be different. So in my opinion, an ideal funding blend and we've used that word before in economics, the blending of payments, would consist of leaving the MBS system exactly as it is for a vast majority of acute care and for a vast majority of patients, even though they may be enrolled. Identifying those patients who would benefit from a different funding stream so it can enable greater teamwork and non-face-to-face care and everything that different funding can help you with. And enrolling those in a different funding stream. So you'd have fee-for-service, a group of patients having block funding in healthcare home, a group of patients having fee-for-service plus some block funding, not quite as much as bundling like the healthcare home, 
and some quality payments. So that is a perfect blend. You're picking and choosing, and, and, and in an ideal world, you can mix and match depending on the, uh, the needs of the population that you service. Some practices will want many more patients enrolled in healthcare homes in a bundle payment type system like healthcare homes. And healthcare homes is not a capitation system, by the way, it's a bundle payment. When those patients who are enrolled come in when, for their colds, coughs, broken toes, fractured ankles, uh, acute headaches that haven't been there before, they're billed like anybody else on the MBS. The bundle payments to look after their general health and their chronic disease. So that's a perfect sort of mixture for those patients. The vast majority of patients, the funding stream shouldn't be touched, but enrolment would formalise relationship. So do you foresee that if you were able to kind of institute that structure, that it would change how your GPs and patients interact or how the other members of your team interact with patients? Do you think that you might have more group consultations or team-based consultations? Kind of what, what do you think you might be doing differently? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and one of the um, most pleasurable experiences in terms of consultations is when a patient comes in for the review of their management plan, about half of them actually sit side by side and do the consult together with the nurse and the patient. And it's, it's very efficient, actually, and patients love it. That works. And, of course, if they need to talk to me privately, they do, and they can. Patient the nurse leaves. So you can change the way you work things even in the current system. It's just fee-for-service makes it a little bit more difficult to really be flexible in the care they want to deliver. It still relies on the patient being in the room or in the house, in the building. Bundling and other forms of payment allow you to move away from that a little bit and service those patients in a different way. We need to sort of really think forward to what it's going to be like in five or ten years' time. The idea that we're going to have every patient come in for everything they need, we're going to be surpassed by technology if we get down that track, which is probably already happening. Yeah, we've got to be ahead of it, don't we, Wally? We've got to be ahead of it. And so I think every practice will want a, a different mix. Some don't want to move. I'm sure they want to stay as things they are. That's fine. Some might want to enrol and move away from a fee for service for 50% of their patients. Personally, I think preventative care is the best service by bundling of parents. Because you can really then deliver this, the, the preventative care in so many different ways. So where does preventive care fall in it, though, Wally? What about the, um, the practice incentive payments for it? Yeah, except, see, I find it hard to distinguish because PRP money, you know, comes in and it's not tied to a patient. I think we still need to bundle money and tie it to a population of patients at least, if not an individual patient. And that's the beauty because it, it helps you distribute the funding and use it in different ways and pull it together in different ways. Because the elephant in the room there is your um, reporting on outcomes and everybody going, I'm not going to do pay for performance. Yeah, So it's right. trying to sell the story that this is not pay for performance, this is paying for better patient outcomes. Um, and how do we sell that story so, it's funny you mention that charlotte I, every time i talk to someone i say do you know we already have paid for performance don't you and they go, what are you talking about and they say well the SIPs, all the service incentive payments if i reach a certain target of my patients having h1z i get paid that's paid for performance you're paying to perform an act a process i think you should be turned around and saying well let's call this pay for improvement and this is where it comes down to the fundamental strategy of leadership and quality improvement strategy you need to be able to say, well, you know what, we can do things a little bit better and perhaps a little bit better again. And it may start at the most basic level, like improving your records. Just, just get a database of patients so that you know who you're looking after. Can I also say it needs to be, it's, it's also about paying for maintenance of improvements because me yep. doing a lot of Correct. improvement work has seen, you know, we can get improvement yep. happening 
the and yeah, the big hard job, and we'll all relate yeah. to this. If we're trying yeah. to get yeah. do weight loss yeah. strategies, exercise changes, etc., yeah. cha- getting that so people can continue it is actually harder than Correct. getting you to the Correct. goal. Correct. Correct. I mean, you've got to say, well, there's a goal, and the goal needs to be reasonable and achievable, and you know all those sort of things. It needs to needs to make sense and be real. You can't just keep improving, 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 just an argument. There's got to be a goal. But there's so much work that we can do on improvement. You know that. I mean, you, you've obviously been doing your work for a long time, Charlotte. You know there's still a lot of stuff in general practice that we can improve on, or at least measure, with to see whether we're improving. Problem is that we don't measure to see what we're, what we're doing, um, and. And, and I've seen, in, you know, in many practices like yourself, Charlotte, you've got your own sort of improvement charts up on the wall for, for the whole team to share. These are the improvement projects happening right now. And getting the whole team involved in that and celebrating where you're making headway and looking at the model for improvement and getting everyone to understand it is absolutely crucial. We're getting kind of towards where we should start rounding up, but I mm-hmm. had a final kind of question in some services they have patient reference groups which help to inform service delivery do you see a role for that within a a patient-centered medical home i'll take it further and say it needs to go beyond that so one of the things that hasn't been talked about that i've been involved with is i've I've teamed up with uh, the consumer health forum so i'm one of um, four or five collaborative peers so to actually collaborate with patient essentially teaching or helping a clinician and a consumer collaborate on something, and I'm talking about true and real collaboration. Leave that aside for a minute. But all of the patients in medical homes that I've seen overseas, you're not going to get anywhere unless you have patients sitting beside you and designing the service with you and understanding each other's perspective on it. That's real engagement. Um, Patient reference groups, designing something and throwing it to a patient reference group to say, hey, guys, what do you think? Is, 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 you know, the, the, the horse has bolted from that perspective. True engagement is having the, the patients co-design a service. There's obviously a limit. There's, there's economic overlay. There's all sorts of overlay to what you can do. But that is true engagement. And we haven't, I haven't done that in the practice. We haven't done that. We're not used to that. But I'm learning a lot about that, uh, particularly in this leadership program with um, collaborative peers. And, and I think that's our next frontier in our practice. Hello. Hey, Ash. Where are yeah. you? Hey, I'm sorry. I just was trying Hello. to be polite and uh, let you guys have a bit of a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I was seeing who would undo their mic first, and it was Beck. I think. I was just going to say, I think that might be a really lovely place to wrap up for the week and move on to talking about our resources for the week. Charlotte, did you want to start with yours? Oh, gosh, I get to start with everything today. I'm really spoiled. I'm going to talk about a resource that maybe lots of people are already using, but I'm just going to go to the RACGP Handy, which is the Handbook of Non-Drug Interventions. And I'm passionate about non-drug interventions, and it's a fabulously fun handbook to read because you've got lots of really great evidence-based interventions that we can encourage our patients to do and you know I don't know about you but I've got lots of patients who love hearing about the evidence behind why they might want to do something and you know and some really fun different ways of treating things that empower you in a way um, because 
well, not empower you in a way, empower you completely in giving people something to do that they feel very positive about and they walk out of the doctor's room feeling really satisfied rather than that you haven't added value to their day. I love that resource. I think that I probably use the plantar fasciitis handout from that resource on almost a weekly basis. (laughs) With mine, I do the auto inflation one. I've got um, a stash of balloons and I get people to do the party trick of the blowing up balloons with their noses. And it's amazing (laughs) how it just always goes down so well. Mm, Good on you. Um, Oh, for me, I suppose, uh, well, it's not so much a resource, but really an interesting read. Um, so I've already mentioned Edgar Schein's book, um, amongst many, many leadership books out there that were very useful to read. Um, but one of the most, I suppose, interesting articles I've read, and comes back to what we were talking about earlier, Charlotte, about the patient experience and, and really what is an outcome that matters to patients, is a perspective article published in the New England Journal of Medicine last week by Susan Walker titled The ROC Curve Redefined, Optimising Sensitivity and Specificity for the Lived Reality of Cancer. And it turns out that she's a, she's the uh, Professor of um, Gynaecology in Melbourne and has written this perspective and published in the New England Journal about her journey through uh, cancer. It was absolutely beautiful to read and really, really gets you in touch with how patients see uh, what outcomes are. And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And for all of those who are members of the RACGP, you can request the library to give you full access to the article, which is pretty cool. I think it may, I'll check, but it may or may not be. I'm not sure if it's a free access, but if it's not, then yes, um, that needs to, yeah, be sourced somehow. Yeah, yeah. So the... um, RACGP library has a service where you can basically put in the details of the article and even just a, a URL linking to the article, then the, the clever library people can have a look at the reference details if you can't <laughs> figure them out yourself and they often send send through and I, I use that resource quite a lot actually. Oh, I can't know that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, I'll, I'll link that to the show notes as well, but if, if you type into Google RACGP library, Mm-hmm. Um, and then you click on library services. You can then send a library re- request and they'll source any journal article that they have access to. So it's really, really useful. And they're really quick and good at it. They get back to you within 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. So, Beck, what's your resource of the week? Actually, I was going to do a quick mention about the whooping cough vaccine and that the guidelines have changed in the past month for when we should be giving them during pregnancy. So previously the guidelines said that we should be doing them between 28 and 32 weeks for all pregnant ladies and they've actually brought that forward so that we should be giving vaccinations for whooping cough, so the Boostrix vaccination, anytime after 20 weeks. So just opening up that cohort of pregnant ladies so that we're not missing anybody. Thank you. My resource of the week is one from Cancer Australia and it's called a Check Your Cancer Risk Tool. So it looks at all the common risk factors for cancers. So it goes through how you protect yourself from the sun, whether you smoke, how much you drink, how many fruit serves you have a day, how many vegetable serves you have a day, 
what your body biometrics are and what type of exercise that you do. It's quite detailed in terms of the questions. And then it gives recommendations on how to improve your chances of not getting cancer, so how to reduce your cancer risk based on some certain behaviours that increase cancer risk. And I've actually found it really useful to do with patients, particularly ones that come in saying, I just need to get checked for everything. And when you talk to them about their concerns about what what they're concerned about, then it can be that it's due to cancer. And then this is a really useful tool to kind of go through where it's got further information where they can go forward. You can print out the results at the end. You can It's got really nice pictures to help them understand what a serve of vegetables is or a serve of fruit. And it's kind of not just you saying it, it's there on on the computer as well. So it's a really useful tool, like interactive tool to use. Yeah, I'm just having a play with it now. I can see that it's um, easy and, you know, just, I mean, it's all the standard advice that we give anyway, but it's nice when it comes from from Cancer Australia and, and validated. Yeah, and it's like the standard drink calculator kind of thing. It, it's it kind of the visual perspective is really useful and it kind of shows a bit of a variety rather than just listening and zoning out sometimes. So I guess we'll finish there. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Wally. Yeah, thanks, Wally. It's been great and it's a shame to come to an end, but, you know, all good things do have to come to an end. No problem. Thank you so much. Um, It's been a pleasure talking to you. Bye, everybody. Have a lovely evening. Bye-bye.